Hello, and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Sarah Ann Minkin, and I'm the Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. Today is August 30th, 2022. What you are about to hear is a webinar we held earlier today entitled Israel, Palestine, and Takeaways from the 2022 Democratic Party Primaries, featuring Rania Batrice, Lara Friedman, Yusuf Munayer, and moderated by Dr. Maha Nassar. You will hear references to resources that we shared with the audience during the webinar. You can find the full list of resources with links on our website, www.fmep.org. Come to the site and look for today's webinar in our events index. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Hello and welcome. I am Mahana Sar, resident non-resident non fellow with the Foundation for Middle East Peace and associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona. Today is August 30th, 2022. Welcome to our webinar, Israel, Palestine and takeaways from the 2022 Democratic Party primaries. During the 2022 Democratic Party primaries, Israel-aligned funders invested tens of millions of dollars to defeat progressive candidates who, as part of a broader rights-based democratic agenda, vocally supported Palestinian rights. So how does Israel-Palestine show up in Democratic Party politics today? How deep is the embrace of Palestinian rights among progressive candidates and in the grassroots? What has the pushback from Israel-aligned funders from both parties looked like and how may it manifest in the future? And what does all of this mean for progressive organizing and candidates in the future? To discuss these questions and more, I'm delighted to be here today with Rania Batrice. Rania is founder and president of Batrice & Associates, a strategic policy and public relations firm specializing in making the progressive dream a reality. Rania has worked as a Democratic operative for nearly 20 years, and she served as deputy campaign manager for the Bernie Sanders, for Bernie Sanders 2016 presidential run. This campaign cycle, she has advised several progressive candidates, so she's witnessing these developments on the ground in real time. We're also joined by Lara Friedman. Lara is president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace and a leading authority on US foreign policy in the Middle East with particular expertise on the role of the, uh, with particular expertise on the role of the US Congress. Lara's Twitter threads have been must reads in tracking primary races across the country. And she's been closely following the spending that is aimed at defeating progressive candidates. And last but not least, we're joined by Dr. Yusuf Mnayer. Yusuf is non-resident fellow at the Arab Center Washington and a leading expert on the Arab-Israeli conflict. His analysis pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Boston Globe, The Nation, and elsewhere. Yusuf's latest piece in The Nation is titled, Why Can't APAC Defend Israel? Which he'll be dis discussing with us today. My colleagues will also be posting a link to that article in the chat. Speakers' bios, full bios are available on the FNF website. So let's go ahead and get started. Rania, we'll start with you. You spent years as a Democratic operative, and then you joined Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign as Iowa Communications Director, National Director of Surrogates, and Deputy Campaign Manager. What was different about Sanders' 2016 run as compared to previous Democratic campaigns? 
How did his run open up space for progressive candidates to talk more openly about Palestine and the Israeli occupation? Thank you so much, Maha, and thank you for having me here today. It's such a fantastic question because I, I have spent over 22 years in this kind of political um, world, if you will. And I will have to say that that 2016 cycle starting in 2015, of course, was unlike any other cycle I had ever been a part of where, you know, Senator Sanders really just opened these doors. He, I say open, he kind of kicked them wide open if we're being really honest in ways that I'd never experienced before because it was sort of, it was like the third rail. If you touch this, oh my gosh, everything's over and, and, and we can't have these conversations and, and the conflation of, 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 you know, at that time going after somebody like Netanyahu, for example, or what the Israeli government was doing was immediately called anti-Semitic. And he really, um, he really just, like I said, just kind of kicked the door open and allowed for those conversations and kind of said like, status quo be damned, we're having these conversations and, and come at me. I'm a, you know, I'm a Jewish man, <laughs> come at me if you, if you must. But, um, but he really opened that door wide. And I, I'm, I'm still very grateful for it because I think it's led to a lot of the conversations that we're having even today um, as, as we're sort of continuing these conversations cycle in and cycle out since that 2015-16 primary we are seeing uh, many more people who are willing to put themselves out there in a way that was previously almost unheard of. I mean, it was very, it was kind of, it was a, a taboo, if I can say that. I feel like that's not the right word, but you know, it was, it was just something that people didn't want to, didn't even want to touch and were afraid of. Um, and I can even, I mean, I remember cycles not, not long before 2015, where I was begging candidates not to fall for the sort of typical APAC, you have to sign this letter, you have to fill out this form, you have to send us a paper. And being oftentimes the only person in the room saying that, saying what, why are we beholden in this way to this organization at that time, especially said, oh, we don't, you know, we don't get involved in electoral politics. That's not what we do. Of course, we, we all know that's not true. But um, anyway, all of that to say, I think Bernie really opened a, a door for all of us to, to have more open dialogue, more honest dialogue about what's happening um, in Israel and with with Palestinians specifically. Great, thank you for that. And I think it also opened the door for progressive candidates running who ran in 2018. Um, and we saw some of those changes happening then. Um, and so Yusuf, turning to you, in 2018, we saw the quote unquote squad coming to Congress. And so these are progressive women of color, including representative Rashida Tlib from Michigan, Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York. So all of them ran in 2018, expressing more vocal support for Palestinian rights as part of their overall progressive social justice oriented agenda. Can you please talk to us about the 28 midterms and the months after that election? How did mainstream Democrats and others respond to the squad's outspokenness on Palestine? Yeah, thank you uh, for that, Maha. I, I think when we think about the 2018 midterm elections, it's important to sort of remember the bigger political context in which they took place. Uh, these midterms were, uh, you know, in the middle of the uh, Trump presidency, in the middle of the Trump term. Here you had this unprecedented candidate 
that became president in, in 2016, rode a wave of uh, really extremist white nationalist sort of politics into the Oval Office uh, and represented a, uh, a, a brand of conservatism that wanted to maintain uh, nativist white male dominance, uh, white male Christian dominance. Um, and, and part of the response in 2018 was the emergence of uh, a number of outspoken, powerful women of color who came from, um, uh, you know, different backgrounds, uh, including immigrant backgrounds, refugee backgrounds. It's important to remember Trump began his first weeks in office with uh, bans on, on Muslim refugees and so on. Um, so the, the, the election of, of these members of Congress was, I think, an important rejection of the politics of Trumpism um, and in part a response to that and also uh, one of the reasons why their outspokenness on Palestine was so powerful because it was also embedded in that overall rejection and response right, to this, to this white nationalist politics, to this ethno-nationalist nativist and, and, and racist movement that, that had, had put Donald Trump in the White House. Um, so I think that's a, sort of important to, to keep in mind about that moment and how remarkable it really was. Um, and when we think about the you know, first few weeks and months after um, the, the new members of Congress who were elected in 2018 were sworn in, right, in, um, in, in 2019, uh, there are a couple of things that sort of stand out, um, you know, in terms of how others in their party saw them and also how um, Republicans saw them, I think, as an opportunity, as a political opportunity. Um, for example, uh, Representative Tlaib's comment around impeaching Donald Trump um, was one that brought a lot of negative attention to her, put her into sort of the spotlight immediately, put her into some difficulty with Democratic leadership. Um, but she was absolutely right about what Democrats were going to end up doing. In fact, they did it twice, right, when it came to impeaching Donald Trump. And so she was a, a visionary in many ways, even though the establishment was not necessarily prepared at the moment uh, to, to stand uh, behind what, uh, what she was saying. And similarly, I think with Representative Omar, there was the you know, so-called anti-Semitism controversy. I, I uh, say so-called because I think it was manufactured in many ways um, precisely to try to delegitimize her as uh, a, a voice uh, for the for the important things that she was uh, standing for, and we saw the way that unfortunately the Democratic establishment um, not only failed to stand beside her as she was being pummeled uh, by the right, but it, but participated uh, in the in the pylon. Sadly, and one of the the people one of the leading voices in that, of course, was former Representative Elliot Engel, um, and you know, perhaps there's some poetic justice in that. Um, I think it's a, a, also important to remember that, you know, they, they came with these strong progressive ideas uh, uh, at, uh, at the moment, uh, talking about, you know, the importance of a $15 minimum wage, the importance of canceling student debt, uh, and the kinds of, um, you know, uh, strong progressive policies that at the end of the day have pushed the current administration um, in a direction that is um, being increasingly welcomed by voters uh, and really reflects where a lot of people in the Democratic 
party are. So in a number of different ways, I think they were visionaries. They were ahead of where the establishment was prepared to go. Um, there was, of course, a suspicion uh, around them from mainstream Democrats, establishment Democrats, in part because of a bigger suspicion around Bernie-cratism in general. Um, and for Democrats who were closer to corporate interests, this kind of politics represented a threat, not just to um, you know, the policies that they supported, but also their, their personal political interests and supporters. Um, that was a huge source of tension. I'll just say a word about what Republicans wanted to use them for, because I think that's important too. Republicans saw an opportunity here um, to divide Democrats by using Israel as, as a political football. We saw this going into 2019 with the, with the showdown over uh, the reconciliation budget and the ways in which um, you know, legislation around anti-BDS laws were trying to get crammed in there at the last minute. Uh, and the way that they were brought right back to the top of the agenda at the beginning of 2019. Uh, we saw it in all the rhetoric around um, you know, the attacks on Representative Omar and others for their positions supporting Palestinians. Um, and it also allowed Republicans to attempt whataboutery uh, as a cover for anti-Semitism within their own ranks, which of course, as we know, during the Trump era really came to the fore. Uh, and so this was uh, something that was instrumentalized by Republicans there. And finally, and I think perhaps this is, is also less discussed, but important, is it allowed mainstream Republicans um, an opportunity to train their fire against representatives um, you know, that, that American white nationalists hate um, as a form of red meat towards a base that they relied on, but wanted to keep a certain distance from. But, it'll, but it allowed them to share a common target with the most extreme elements of their party uh, who opposed seeing strong women voices, immigrants in power, you know, diversity in Congress altogether. Um, and so uh, they, were, they were attacked on those grounds and for those reasons as well. Great, thank you for that. So we're seeing a direct line then from Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign to the election of these progressive women of color, both of which are happening sort of on the eve of the Trump era and then in the Trump era. So Laura, let's turn it to you and bring it more, um, you know, sort of through the 2018 midterm to the present. So Israel aligned groups have been spending money on political campaigns for decades, but it used to be something that wasn't discussed openly. Can you please talk to us about, how, about the history of Israel aligned campaign funding and how it's worked in previous campaign cycles, and then also maybe how it started to be used post-2018 with the rise of both the white nationalist or, uh, sort of movement under Trump, as well as the rise of these progressive movements as well. Thanks, that's a great question. I, I think actually Rania and Yusuf have laid the groundwork really well, and I'll try not to repeat them too much. They covered a lot. Um, look, I mean, I think an interesting place to start is what Yusuf mentioned, which is the Ilhan Omar kerfuffle around the, the phrase all about the Benjamins, which I have to say for anyone who's worked in politics and electoral politics, anyone who's worked with Congress was just surreal. Um, the idea that um, that election funding it does not play a role in Congress pro-Israel election funding. It's just, it's absurd. Um, and it, it's absurd if you, you know, you've sat in an office where you're talking about, you know, you know, whether they should, whether they will or won't sign the APAC letter. And a staffer says, you know, if we don't sign the letter, my boss is going to get five calls from the top APAC affiliated funders in the district. 
And, you know, APAC has always done this sort of with a wink and a nod because they're not a pack. They never were previously in the political action committee sense. They love to score points when people would call them a pack. It obviously proves that you're ignorant and biased because they're not. They were actually a, a public affairs committee, PAC. But the reality is they were closely linked with groups like NORPAC, which were PACs. Um, the, the, the sort of, you know, um, firewall between the, the groups that actually funded and the leadership of APAC was, was very, very thin. Um, and we, we actually got to see how thin that was even in, in prior to APAC actually becoming a PAC when you, know, you can go back and look at some of the research around the Democratic majority for Israel, which was when, when APAC aligned leaders wanted to start actually engaging more openly in funding. We had a group called Democratic Majority for Israel created, the argument being that this would be how real Democrats feel um, and clearly a, a spin-off of APAC in terms of its leadership, but also in terms of its funding. And there, you could, this has been written about um, in, in numerous cases, but you know, th the funding was always an issue. And this is it, to suggest that it wasn't is, is either ignorant or deeply cynical um, in, in sense of using it for political purposes. In, in terms of tracking the, the arc of, of, of more public engagement, um, we've talked about you know, Congresswoman um, uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. I actually would like to focus for a moment on what was in some ways the, the biggest election of that cycle for the pro-Israel focused side, which was um, Ocasio-Cortez unseating um, Joseph Crowley, who was you know, a, an earnest supporter of Israel, you know, not, not a Jewish member, but he was one of the great standard bearers of a um, mainstream APAC-backed Israel position in Congress. And the fact that he was upset was a shock to the system. Um, and the fact that he was upset by a young Latino woman, and then that became the birth of an era of, as Yusuf said, some of the most, you know, the, the red meat for, for some people in the right. You know, this, these are women, they're young, they're brown, they're black, they're Muslim. They stand together in solidarity on a range of issues. They are values focused. You can't, you know, you can't sort of, you know, look at who's, you know, donating to them to see where they're going to go. They support what they, they say their values are. I think was a real wake up call. And I think if you look at the next election, um, the next election cycle, that was where you saw DMFI come in for the first time and really try to have a different role. And they had, I mean, arguably some success. The, the place where I think you can sort of draw the biggest conclusions, again, looking at the through line from then to now, I would actually point at two races. Um, one is the Elliott Engel, Jamal Bowman race. Um, we can talk about that more. I think Ranya knows more about this than I do, but it, you know, it's a really fascinating race where you had a genuinely grassroots candidate massively upset, <laughs> massively upset, a, a veteran mainstream um, uh, incumbent um, who was, again, one of the standard bearers for the pro-Israel agenda in Congress, but he wasn't upset over that. This is, I mean, and this again is part of the through line, that race was not about Israel. Jamal Bowman didn't win because of his positions on Israel-Palestine and Engel didn't lose because of his positions on Israel-Palestine, but you had a clear effort by DMFI to come in with money and try to save him and they didn't succeed. Um, and that, I think, was, again, a shock to the system. And I, I think it was a moment for um, folks who understand the role that money plays in, in elections to say, are we doing this right um, from the pro-Israel side? 
The other side of that, though, is the Richie Torres race, where you had um, elected in another New York race, a young um, gay African. I mean, it, it, he, he checks all the progressive boxes and he's pro-Israel. And I mean, I was getting ready for this this webinar today. I was I looked until I found this quote, and it's a quote from the head of uh, it was after this election cycles from the head of DMFI, and she said, "Is it the Engel race or the Richie Torres race that represents the future of the Democratic Party?" And I think that is right there telling you, you know, it's 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 sort of like there's no secret that it's telegraphing clearly what the intention was going for the lessons learned you know, in terms of how races are going to be targeted and, and what candidates are going to be supported and what the what the tactic is going to be, right? It wasn't a tactic of finding the most, you know, ardently pro-Israel, you know, APAC-y candidate. It was finding a candidate who appeals on all the grassroots things that people actually vote on, who's also pro-Israel, and then putting a ton of money behind them. And that really sort of gets us where we are today. Great. Thank you for that. So Laura, sticking with you for a moment, let's turn to the current cycle. So you just talked about how funding has worked in the past and how it, it began to change with DMFI after the, um, in the last election cycle or last couple of election cycles. So what's new this year in 2022, particularly in terms of the funding of campaign primaries as compared to funding in general elections? And then also, what does it mean that people and the media are talking more openly about this Israel-aligned funding now? I was quite surprised to see articles in the New York Times about the race in Michigan, the race in New York, the race and other races that talk quite openly and brazenly about the fact that there's all of this um, pro-Israel funding that's coming into the primaries. So can you talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah, and, and the answers to those questions are, are are deeply connected, right? I, it's funny, someone asked me a while ago why I was tweeting every single article that had to do with Israel in these primaries. I actually have a thread, it's you know many hundreds of tweets at this point. And I said, you know, I started tweeting that thread because I didn't wanna be accused of just like occasionally like tweeting things that I liked or cherry picking. You know, I was trying to give myself, you know, as much to make as clear as possible that the purpose here was to follow a trend and not to sort of weigh in. And I didn't know it was gonna turn into a many hundreds of tweets long thread that in retrospect, I kind of wish I hadn't because it's been something of an albatross. Um, but, you know, if, if in the past, in the past it was difficult to talk about this funding because APAC did have this firewall. And APAC was very keen on, on, on arguing that anyone, again, if you get the word PAC wrong, you're clearly ignorance and an anti-Semite. You know, if you say that they are directing money, we don't direct money, how can you say that? Um, it, it was hard to talk about this because it was done in this very, um, I wanna say below the radar. There were, these were local matters. Um, in a, a, any any candidate knew where the money was coming from, knew who they were, you know, for you could say beholden to, or at least knew who they were supported by, who they were going to give meetings to and listen to. That that wasn't a secret, but to sort of the people who tried to draw or talk about this in broader terms were invariably called anti-Semites, right? Conspiracy theorists, you know, why why are you doing this? I mean, that changed in the cycle, and and it changed because the you know first of all apac decided again i i for me i draw a direct line between what happened in 2020 and what they saw there with things like um ocasio-cortez and 
previously, and then Richie Torres and, and Jamal Bowman, the decision was taken, we can have impact, we should have impact. And I'm not attributing, attributing intent there. I'm believing them when they say, we decided we should do this, right? They're on the record, this is very open. Um, so they formed a PAC. And, and what they've done with this PAC, and I will say for folks who are very critical of, of you know, the various aspects of intervention of pro-Israel forces in our politics, they're not doing anything that's illegal. Our system is designed to work this way. People talk about for years that, you know, the Jewish lobby this, the, okay, there's nothing illegal about lobbying Congress. Our system is vulnerable to, to very well-organized, well-funded, you know, groups lobbying and lots of groups do it. Israel isn't the only one. What APAC did in this election, though, is figure out a vulnerability in our in our election process and our primary process. And I'm, you know, Rania has more experience in politics than I can talk about whether other groups have ever done this to the same extent. But what they realized is if you if you look at races where you have a safe democratic seat, the winner of the primary is going to have that seat, that there is an opportunity there to come in heavily with heavy money and 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 try to have an influence on the outcome of that election. And you know, they came in with so much money in multiple races that it's impossible not to talk about it. And and there was an effort. I mean, I got pushed back a couple of times in after a couple of the initial races where they did this, you know, that it's somehow anti-Semitic to talk about. It. It's like, okay, so apparently it's not anti-Semitic, it's not a problem to do it. And it's not a problem for APAC to literally on Twitter and in press releases tout its success in impacting elections, but it's somehow anti-Semitic to say that anti-Semitic to say they're doing it, which just that doesn't work. I mean, at a certain point, you just you, that you just can't believe that, particularly when APAC is putting out press releases. So we, we've we've hit this weird. You know, there's been a tipping point, right? And and I think the argument we're still seeing people simultaneously arguing that it's anti-Semitic to talk about this. Why aren't you talking about other super PACs doing it? Notwithstanding the fact that APAC's money was the biggest money in these primaries. They, they, they spend more than APAC and DMFI together and a couple other sort of stealth PACs spent more than anyone else in these primaries, but somehow it's anti-Semitic to point that out. That's one argument. Another argument is it's silly to say that it had any impact. These people won or lost because of other factors, despite the fact that APAC is literally bragging about having had that impact. I mean, it, it, it's just it's just nuts. And the other piece of it that is fascinating looking at how these the, these elections are being talked about is, you know, there is if you look at the coverage of it, I think the media has been somewhat um, gullible or at least suggestible in framing the APAC wins, if you attribute these as APAC wins, I think APAC, I believe APAC had a significant impact. I think putting $2 million in the last part of an election, I, I live in DC, so I saw what happened in Maryland because it was on my TV every minute. We know what that did, it was it was saturated. I mean, the, the argument that this was about, somehow a referendum on Israel-Palestine, and Yusuf can talk about this more compellingly than anybody, has actually some, has seeped into the coverage of it, despite the, the fact that none of these elections were actually about Israel. None of these campaigns were about Israel. None of the interventions were significantly about Israel, right? So it's we're in a really fascinating period here where you have outside money coming in, in massive quantities to push races for parties that have a specific agenda that never mention and, and even hide that agenda when they're doing this. Great, thank you. Um, so let's go ahead and turn you, uh, to you, Seth. 
So Yusuf, um, in your recent piece in The Nation, you make the astute point that even though Israel-aligned PACs are targeting progressive candidates for their views on Palestine, they don't actually mention Israel in their attack ads. So I was wondering if you could first talk about what some of these alleged positions are of progressive candidates that are deemed to be outside the so-called democratic majority. And then also why do these PACs feel they have to hide their pro-Israel agenda? Yeah, this, this is something that I thought was was super interesting, you know, and, and I'll just say I'm not an expert on political ads, but I'm sure like all of you, I've seen more than than I ever care to have seen during um, uh, election seasons. And so you sort of get familiar with um, the format and the talking points and the types of ads and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so when it became clear that there was this very obvious campaign and intervention by APAC to have a significant impact in the Democratic primaries, I wanted to kind of understand, okay, what are the messages that they're focusing their ads on? Um, and, and as I got to looking at the different ads that were out there, and they're available for everybody to see, a really interesting pattern emerges. Um, there is no mention of Israel whatsoever in any of these ads. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, there may be exceptions out there, but every ad that I've found, and I've, I've cataloged dozens of them across many races, uh, the pattern is the same. Not only is um, uh, Israel de-emphasized, it's not even mentioned, it's avoided. And, you know, that's not necessarily a, a strange thing until you understand that these are ads paid for by a single issue pack whose single issue is Israel. And in that sense, it seems to me very unprecedented. Um, in, in a world of single issue packs, it's hard to really, it's hard to really think of another uh, comparable um, effort by a single issue pack to spend all of this money on ads tarnishing the uh, candidates they want to they want to oppose and, and boosting those that they want to support on any issue other than the single issue that they are about. Usually, if you're a single issue pack, whether it's on climate or on guns or the economy or, or whatever, your message is, hey, this candidate is bad on our issue. This is why you shouldn't support them, right? But that's that's not what's happening here. It's actually the exact opposite of what's happening here. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, on, on this issue and a wide range of other issues, especially foreign policy issues, most voters, particularly at the primary level, are simply not moved by those issues, right? People are not, the average Democratic primary voter is not voting based on foreign policy and is not voting based on, you know, one sub foreign policy issue, right? Um, but at the same time, APAC is claiming uh, that the fact that the candidates that they are supporting are winning shows that being pro-Israel is in fact good politics, as if somehow these candidates are winning because the reality is the Democratic uh, voter base supports the positions that APAC's, APAC takes. But if that was the case, of course, APAC wouldn't have to spend millions of dollars to elect these candidates and wouldn't be afraid of talking about these issues in the ads that they're spending millions of dollars on. 
And when one looks at the actual sort of public opinion polling on these issues, um, you realize exactly why APAC doesn't want to talk about Israel, doesn't want to mention issue, uh, mention the issue at all. Um, and, and that's because the brand among Democrats, the Israel brand among Democrats, um, is uh, probably irreparably tarnished. Uh, and when you look at the numbers, that becomes very clear. Um, you, when, when, for example, recent polling uh, asking um, you know, Americans about their uh, member of Congress and whether or not their member of Congress's position on Israel-Palestine reflects theirs or leans too much towards Israel or leans too much towards the uh, Palestinians. Um, Ten times more Democrats uh, say that their member's position leans more towards Israel than it does uh, uh, than those who say that it leans towards the Palestinians. What that means is that the Democratic voter base is actually far uh, wants to wants to see their members move far more towards a position sympathetic to Palestinians than they are right now, which is the exact opposite, of course, of what APAC is claiming about where Democrats really are. So I think you know all altogether what this tells us is that this effort is really not about you know a reflection of where the democratic base is going to be is but rather a reflection of where APAC is in response to a democratic base that has moved on and uh, because of that is responding in a sort of panic to try to throw as much money as possible at a problem um, that they're not going to be able to solve in this way. Uh, perhaps they can put a Band-Aid on it for some time, um, but these are numbers and trends that we've seen growing over time, and the reality is that um, un unless the situation on the ground changes, more Americans are going to be increasingly critical and in turning away from the kind of policies APAC wants to see. Thank you for that, Yusuf. Um, Ronnie, let's turn to you now and talk about a specific campaign from this cycle. So you worked on the Nida Alam race. She ran for a house seat in North Carolina's fourth district. Can you please tell us a little bit about how these issues played out in that primary? What investments were made against Nida and what was their impact? Uh, absolutely, thank you again for a wonderful question and, and really one of my favorite people. I absolutely adore Nida. Um, she, she's somebody that I work closely with. Actually, we met on the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016. Um, somebody I just really had a lot of love and respect for. And so was very, very excited when she decided to take, take the step and run for this open seat. David Price had been, uh, had, was retiring. And, um, and sh I'll tell you, I mean, I really, I've worked with a lot of really incredible people. That woman worked so hard. I mean, she really, really put in the work, really put in the effort, was in the community, talking to people, showing up, really just incredible. And, and, and it's one of my biggest disappointments, I will say, her loss um, for multiple reasons. One of the things, the, the, the person who, who won, who's the, you know, going, it's one of those districts that we were talking about before where the primary is the race that's it. She's going to, Valerie Fouché, who, who won the primary, is going to win the general, um, 
she, Valerie never showed up to anything. Uh, I mean, she didn't show up to forums. She wouldn't speak to the press when she did speak to the press because she was just getting pummeled about all this APEC um, and DMFI money that was coming in. And, and the fact that she actually didn't raise very much money at all herself. The, rate, the only significant money she raised was actually bundled by APEC for her. So, um, you know, it, 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 it takes buying a seat to a whole nother level when it's not only outside funding being spent, like Yusuf was talking about television, which is something I happen to do for a living as well as in political media. Um, so they dumped millions of dollars for, for Valerie Fushi in, into political, uh, into ads. But then they also raised the only significant money she had on, on the hard side, the hard side meaning the actual campaign side. And so here's somebody who's not showing up within the community, not showing up to forums, that when she did actually speak to the media, she her quote was something to the effect of, um, we're a big tent party and we have to accept varying opinions on democracy. That was in response, and it still makes me crazy, y'all. I'm sorry, but that was in response to being called, you know, having feet held to the fire about APAC endorsing over a hundred insurrectionist supporters. Um, and that was her answer: varying opinions on democracy. This is a Democrat, y'all. In 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 a million years, did we ever think we were gonna be in this place? But here we are. And you know, and then other really gross things that happened, like there was a terrible, we don't know 100% who was from, likely APAC or DMFI, but there was a really terrible Islamophobic push-pull um, against Nida that that was out in the community. She and her team, Valerie, because she and her team never condemned it, never said anything about it. So there's a lot of like really kind of nasty things as well that kind of make us all sick to our stomach. Um, and then, you know, again, the excuses of, she she was saying things like, oh, all Democrats are doing this. Well, no, all Democrats are not doing this. Like APAC and DMFI are choosing very specific people in very specific seats to go after. And they don't they don't actually care about the person who's running. It's about the person that's running against them. So in this case, it's NIDA. They did not want NIDA anywhere near the halls of Congress, lest she uphold justice and equity for all. And oh my goodness, we could just can't have that. So, you know, it's, it's really, really upsetting. It's one of those things where um, Nida worked, like I said, very, very hard. She actually outraised everybody in, in the field, in the primary field, um, quite significantly without that APAC bundling help. And she did it with grassroots donors all across North Carolina and all across the country. And then here you have these entities coming in, DMFI and APAC coming in and, and buying a seat. And by the way, this person who is now, in, for all intents and purposes, the Congresswoman elect for North Carolina four is still not showing up in her community and is still nowhere to be found. And there, you know, we've all seen what's still happening in Israel and Palestine um, and, and the occupied territories. And she, she said nothing, you know, she has nothing to say about anything. And this is, I think one of the most, um, upsetting and egregious things that happens when these seats are bought in this fashion is then all of a sudden you are pledging allegiance, not to the flag, not to the United States, not to uphold our constitution. You are pledging allegiance to APAC and DMFI. And, and, 
I just do want to say something um, here because it's similar to what Yusuf was just talking about. In North Carolina, all this money that was spent on behalf of the of Valerie who won, not a single mention of Israel, of Palestine, of, of any issue related to Israel and Palestine, nothing. And I, I have to call out the, the person who runs DMFI is a pollster. He does polling for a living. <laughs> and, and so it's not an accident. It's not like, oh, we're just not gonna, you know, we're not gonna touch that here. It is absolutely intentional. And, and Mark Melman, who runs DMFI is not a dumb person. Like he's very, very smart. So I'm sure I have not spoken to him about this, but my, my guess is he's seeing these numbers and it's not a winning strategy. Just like Yusuf was saying, it is not a winning strategy. So we're gonna make it about everything else. And then immediately after, um, immediately after that primary, APEC put out an email just again, like Yusuf was saying, to taking credit and look how this is a winning issue and, all, and it's so disingenuous. And I'm just, it's a lie. It's a lie. And it's really gross and upsetting. <laughs> I don't know if anybody can tell, get a little worked up over this. But um, but it's 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 one of those things that we just really we can't allow that narrative to be taken a hold of and run with because it's it's just not true, first of all. And it can be very disheartening to a lot of people as well. And then we also see the impacts on other campaigns, other races, other individuals who like to wrap themselves in the progressive banner, but then do this whole about face when it comes to Israel-Palestine because they're, they've also been convinced that this is a winning issue for them. And it's just not true. It's, it's a, it is about money and buying seats. Do we need to counter that? Absolutely. Mida was outspent around four to one and just barely lost. Um, and, and her campaign manager, her, her name is Maya Honda. She's absolutely amazing. Love that woman. She actually wrote a really compelling um, column right after the primary, breaking down the math of we've seen, the, you know, whether it was Summer Lee, which ended in our favor, thank goodness, or other races we've seen where candidates are able to pull it off versus not being able to pull it off. And her sort of hypothesis, if you will, is if, if we if we're outspent around two to one, we can still make it happen. We being progressives who are truly about Palestinian justice and sovereignty. Um, it, but, but beyond that is when it gets a little too much to overcome. So the idea is not that we have to raise dollar for dollar with them. Uh, I'm sorry to get into campaign strategy here, but you know, that's not the idea. We don't have to match them dollar for dollar, but we have to be close enough to be able to get our own message out there, get our own narrative out there in a way that competes with the dump of money that goes into, uh, into the other side. Great, thank you for that, Rania. So Yusuf, both you and Rania have been talking about how these um, efforts to defeat progressive candidates don't actually mention Israel. And this is quite a contrast to earlier campaign cycles when I remember candidates who would sign these reflective statements or sort of give these uh, boilerplate statements about how we stand unconditionally with Israel and so forth. And so we have a question from the audience that asks, to what extent have we reached a point where the usual reflexive statements of unconditional support for Israel by democratic politicians may now become a liability 
rather than a prerequisite for attaining political office. Do you see that shift happening or are we not there yet? Yusuf, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to sort, it's hard to sort of figure out where is the threshold um, and uh, when, when, when have we crossed it? But I think there are some important things to sort of point to that at least for me have been important markers of change. Um, and, uh, you know, just a couple of them that I will point out is um, uh, if you if you think about last May during the Israeli bombardment of, of Gaza for the umpteenth time, uh, you saw the response or lack of response uh, from, um, you know, reflexive pro-Israel stalwarts historically like Chuck Schumer and Bob Menendez uh, that I think anybody who's been watching this for some time would realize is very different than the way they would have responded uh, five years ago or 10 years ago. So I do think I do think that there is change there. It is becoming more of a liability. Uh, it's borne out in the numbers. The question is, um, you know, how how much of an impact does that actually have in electoral outcomes, and at what point does it become um, enough of a liability that it actually counterbalances the impact of of a lot of resources that are dumped in um, by uh, pro-Israel groups. Um, to, to shape the election outcomes the way that they want. One thing I just want to say on, on the um, sort of the influence of these super PACs in, um, in the primary campaigns, you know, these primary campaigns are very small races. Um, they're obviously big races to everybody who's involved with them. They're life-changing events. But when you look at the actual numbers of voters that are involved, um, it, it's not a huge number of voters. And when you think about the you know, the, the, the significant amount of resources that are coming from outside of the district, almost entirely from outside of the district in which these races are coming, uh, uh, taking place, sometimes from, you know, billionaires, millionaires, and, and, and oftentimes from Republican donors as well. Um, we need to see this not just as a threat to a pursuit of a more just American policy towards Palestine, but really a threat to democracy. And this sounds a lot like a conversation Laura and I have been having for many years around anti-BDS legislation and what it means, not just for Palestinians, but people who, who believe in democracy and free speech and all of that. This, I think, is something similar. The impact of super PACs uh, and primary campaigns to shape outcomes in this way is something that is not only going to be utilized by pro-Israel groups, but is, is going to be emulated and repeated by anyone who has the money to shape election outcomes in a way that, that they'd like to see. So I think for progressives, for other Democrats, even if Palestine is not your issue, this should be a huge, huge warning sign and get people thinking about what kind of rules really should be in place around spending in Democratic primaries. Great, thank you for that, Yusuf. And thank you for broadening our scope a little bit um, to thinking about not just Israel Palestine, how Israel Palestine shows up in politics, but some of the broader um, debates and topics around politics as well. And so that is a nice segue to Lara. Uh, so Lara's asking you now. So APEC has long presented itself as bipartisan, yet the partisan divide in this country over a whole host of issues is only becoming sharper. Earlier this year, APAC endorsed more than 100 Republican candidates who voted to overturn the 2020 presidential election, even as Democrats have made voting rights a central theme. 
So can you talk to us please about how support for Israel shows up in the US Republican agenda and in conservative politics more broadly? Yusuf gave us some background about it in the Trump era, so maybe you can talk to us about it now. And also, even though these primaries are democratic primaries, the funding from APAC and others and APAC aligned groups is now shifting these Democrats more into the service of a conservative agenda. Is that right? And again, Yusuf just alluded to the idea of big money in politics um, and other ways in which our democracy is at risk right now. So can you talk a little bit about that, please? Sure. I think it's it's worth just stating just from the outset, the this idea that APAC is bipartisan in nature has been challenged for at least the past 20 years. Um, you can go pretty far back. I mean, you, you can go as far back as the Obama era and BB coming to Washington and APAC launching essentially a campaign to undermine the Obama era, the Obama presidency's policy on, on Iran. You can look at APAC um, actively opposing the efforts on um, the so-called peace process of various presidents. Um, you know, it, the, the, the bipartisan piece of this it's almost like there's been a, a gentlewoman's gentleman's agreement on the Hill to continue with the language of APAC is bipartisan and maybe the fiction that APAC is bipartisan when it is clear that most of the big funders of APAC are not bipartisan and the agenda of APAC, um, I, don't, I don't think it's partisan or not, it's become increasingly partisan um, as the divide between progressive Democrats and Republicans has become clearer and clearer, and Israel is one of the issues on which they are divided. And within the Republican Party, it, you know, Israel plays a, a complicated role within the Republican Party. I, I don't want to go back to the beginning of time, but I think we can certainly go back to around 2010 and the rise of the Tea Party. Um, that was, I think, the, the modern beginning of Israel taking on the same resonance within parts of the Republican Party as you see things like gay rights and abortion and feminism, pick your, now today, CRT, pick your, pick your, your, your hot nerve that can be, that can be, you know, either touched to hurt people or played to, to, to garner support. Um, and, and, and some of that has to do with, you know, deep evangelical Christian Zionism and things like Christians United for Israel, Kufi and their work. Some of this has to do, I think, with very cynical politics and a recognition that this is an issue that can be used to, 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 to really corner Democrats who so far have been unwilling to stand with a base or to even um, as a Democratic Party um, legitimize a spectrum of views on Israel-Palestine. And I, if you look at the debate around BDS and free speech, it's, it's the most obvious example. I mean, it, so long as Democrats are unwilling to recognize legitimacy of boycotts even when it comes to boycotting for reasons of objecting to Israeli policy or dissenting from support for Zionism. I mean, if, if they won't legitimize it, they're basically saying this is a sharp knife that we will allow Republicans to throw among us and then we can use it to cut each other up on their behalf. And that's exactly what's happened over and over and over. The, 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 the fact that in the current election cycle coming out of the Trump era and the hyper partisanship of the Trump era. And I would say the, 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 the identification of the mains of the Republican party, which uh, with ideas that are not, not anything historically you would have called mainstream, right? That in this era still 
putting a, a, a prize on the term bipartisan. I mean, this is APEC that that welcomed and legitimized and I would argue strengthened Trump during his campaign, right? I think that was maybe a turning point for some people in understanding what APEC's role is. Um, but it wasn't really a turning point and people still insisting it's bipartisan and that, that bipartisanship must be guarded above all because bipartisan support for Israel is key and we all know what that means. And we're not gonna talk about it because God forbid we might disagree on what that means. But you know, in this moment where I think a lot of analysts of US um, history and people who understand what the rise of fascism looks like and the death of democracies, looking at the current cycle and the pressures to undermine the, the sort of the, the, the foundations of democracy that we are that 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 many of us are deeply concerned about and that some are trying to resist the idea that APAC in the name of bipartisanship is simultaneously funding those who openly want to, I don't know, support that there shouldn't be a peaceful transition of power after an election or the illegitimacy of voting in this country, et cetera, that that somehow doesn't harm legitimacy of, of APAC as a bipartisan actor. It's kind of surreal. And then add to that what we know because it's come out publicly about the fact that the money that APAC is pouring into democratic primaries, you know, I, part of me really hates the term buying an election because it, it takes agency away from the voters. And I don't wanna take agency away from the voters, but thinking about what Yusuf just said, when you've got an election, a primary election, which has, you know, it, it, it's a five digit electorate, not a six digit electorate. And people are pouring $4 million, say, into that election. You start figuring out per person, how much is being spent on lobbying each individual voter. Okay, maybe buying elections is a complicated term to use. I, I, I do wonder, it's like, how much do you have to spend per voter for that to be seen as, as, as a problematic expenditure? And when in a democratic primary, which ostensibly is supposed to be looking at the will of democratic voters, that money is being poured in coming from sources that are openly not interested in Democrats, not interested in strengthening Democrats, but is interested in ensuring that there is a partisan shift to Republican control and Democrats who will be supportive of some piece of an agenda that is consonant with Republican objectives. That's really, really weird. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it requires a tremendous act of, of, of living with cognitive dissonance, I think, for people to not be bothered by this um, as, as they vote, if they, are, if they are not bothered by it. I will just say one more thing, just picking up on something you have said, there's, there's a really, um, Congressman Levin in Michigan, who was one of the one of the members who was who who lost in a highly contested Democrat, a highly contested primary with huge amounts of money poured in to oppose him. Um, and there will the, there are those who will argue that he would have lost anyway, and she was a strong candidate and he was a weak candidate. The problem is you can't test that. You can't go back and say, let's run the election again without all this money and see how he does. Um, but there was a um, there was a Facebook live event with him and Congressman Yarmouth, uh, John Yarmouth, in, in support of him. And one of them said, I don't remember which, trying to il illustrate for people what's happening with this investment in money. They said, imagine if Elon Musk decided to come in to safe primaries in Michigan and put millions of dollars without saying who he was or what he was supporting and support Congress members of Congress or candidates who don't support the traditional automobile industry, right? 
it, it, it like it's that existential right in terms of what what this means for the interests of voters to to not be aware at least of the the motivations of those who are putting this kind of money in and the idea that people aren't affected again i i live in the maryland viewing area that they're not affected by ads every single station break ads basically never mentioning the issue that the people are interested in the israel issue but just just hammering at you that these people are not trusted they're not believable they're not effective whatever hammering at you the idea that that doesn't have impact i mean the only way you could test that doesn't have impact is if the other side had the same amount of money and was able to do the same thing and then you see where they go Oh, I'm sorry. Can I say one more thing? Uh, this is on the question of not not highlighting the agenda. It's not merely that APAC didn't highlight Israel in its ads. APAC ran with a pack called United Democracy. Um, I'm actually forgetting what it said. UDP, which didn't mention Israel at all. It now mentions it on the website. When they first launched, UDP didn't mention Israel on the website, I believe. I mean, it's not there. If you look at just the tagline on the ads, it says UDP. It doesn't mention Israel at all. And on top of that, in the last election that they engaged in, in New York, they actually put their money into another innocuously named PAC to hide their actual involvement. So on this question of whether or not there has been a tipping point, whether or not the pro-Israel piece of it becomes radioactive at some point, I, I mean, my takeaway looking at APAC's not choice of intervening behind another pack in New York in this last election and not intervening at all in the Ilhan Omar election when she is public enemy number one for them suggests to me that they recognize that in some contexts they are radioactive and that their open engagement in it would actually help the people they want to hurt. Great. Thank you for that, Laura. So Rania, let's turn back to you for a moment. So Lara just talked about the ways in which APAC has been aligning with Republican and conservative agendas for a while. But there's another sort of headwind that progressives face, which is from corporate interests. So a lot of progressive candidates run on issues that are really personal to people, but that also tap into national conversations and indirectly touch on Palestine. For example, funding Medicare for All and the Green New Deal both of which would mean material improvements in people's daily lives, would likely require a shift in funding priorities away from military spending and aid to Israel. That those types of funding shifts have already gotten a lot of pushback from corporate interests. So how do you advise candidates on how to link these broader national questions to local kitchen table issues in the face of such corporate pushback? Yeah, thank you. I, I, it, this is such an important question because it kind of brings us a little bit to messaging um, in, in my mind. I mean, everybody, people have different opinions. I, I have the belief that labels oftentimes get us into trouble on some of those issues that you're like, like Medicare for all, like Green New Deal. You know, I think if you just were to say, I think Laura and I have actually talked about this in the past. If you're just to say, I don't believe that a family should have to file for bankruptcy because somebody gets sick. I don't believe that somebody needs to be able to, you know, has to choose between their insulin and, and their utility bills or, or, you know, or, or I, you know, I want the future generations. I want my God kids and my nieces and nephews to have a livable planet for years to come. You know what I mean? Things like that. If we sort of take the label away and really bring it down to the issue that we're talking about and take the effort to meet people where they are, which I feel like we fail at, we being 
Democrats, progressives, whatever you want to call us, <laughs> you know, we sort of fail at sometimes because we get so fixated on the labels that we forget that if we're in rural America and we're talking to a farmer and we say Green New Deal, they're like, meh, like, you know, that's not something I'm necessarily interested in. But if I talk to you as a somebody, again, in rural America, family farmer who is, who's having to change your harvest, uh, harvest schedules, whose, whose soil is receding, all of these things that are direct direct impacts of climate change, we can have that conversation more directly. And I feel like this is somewhere we get a little bit lost and fixated on the labels versus what are we actually trying to impact here. And, and this is the thing, I feel like conservatives are very, very good at naming things. To Laura's point, the United Democracy Project has nothing to do with democracy. In fact, I think I could we could probably make the argument that is the antithesis of democracy. Um, but they're very good at naming things and and scaring people into believing that it, oh my gosh, if we don't go in this direction, if you if you are supportive of X, Y, or Z um, social or kitchen table issue, you as a everyday American are going to suffer in all of these ways. Never mind that you're already suffering. You know what I mean? Never mind. And, and to the point of, of military funding, specifically funding to Israel to the tune of billions of dollars, as we all know, people in this country are suffering. Literally every day right now are suffering. And what we hear from our elected officials oftentimes is, oh, we can't afford that. We can't pay for that. We can afford billions of dollars to go unchecked additional money to the Iron Dome, which I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. I just don't even care. You know, we can afford that. We can afford all of those billions of dollars, but we can't afford to make sure children in this country aren't going hungry. We can't afford to make sure that, you know, again, insulin is affordable. And, and I know there's a lot of talk about the $35 cap that's for people on Medicare. And that's great. And it's a wonderful step, but there's a whole host of other people out there that aren't going to be able to take advantage of that. So et cetera, et cetera. You, you get the point that I'm, I'm, I'm coming for. So I feel like one of the things that we really have to do collectively do a little better is, is the idea of meeting people where they are. And this, whether we're talking about domestic issues in the United States or, or um, funding on, on, uh, on, you know, Israel funding to Israel or, or any other host of military funding issues. I think we have to be able to communicate in a very plain, clear way, not get into the metrics and the numbers because most people don't have time for that. They don't want to hear all of the billions of dollars, blah, 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 you know, and all the acronyms and all the things that we get bogged down in. We just have to bring it down to a very human level. And, and this is something I just, I think we have a lot of, a lot of work to do, but also a great opportunity to again, I keep saying this, but to meet people where they are and and really have um, more impactful conversations. And going back to something Yusuf was talking about too, as far as just overall funding, I'm kind of switching gears a little bit here back into campaign world, but you know, campaign finance reform, which we probably need to find a better name for that as well, but campaign finance reform has largely, was a bipartisan issue once upon a time. And then it just sort of got thrown in the back and Democrats have failed on this too. Like we, we've all collectively failed on this, but to Yusuf's previous point, it's gonna be really, really hard for us to make 
pivots into what is actually best for the global good, not just literally globally, but also across this country. If if we're can if the money influx continues to influence every aspect of our electoral process, and that's currently where we that's where we exist right now. It, it absolutely uh, that outside money, that special interest money, makes a massive, massive difference. And we're talking, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars being spent on the electoral process, which is like wrap our, wrapping our heads around that hurts a little bit because that's just so much money that could be going to into communities and to all kinds of other things. And it's not. Now let's go back to the, to the kind of official legislative side of it. We're talking about even more billions of dollars that are going into the, and not going into ensuring safety, security, wellness, equity, fairness, et cetera, um, in our own country. So it's it's one of those things that I, I wish I had a simple answer and we'd snap our fingers and we're there. But unfortunately, I think it's going to take really communities coming together, having these conversations in ways that that folks in the communities can understand in order to make people aware that their vote as, as hard as it is and as, as difficult as, um, you know, our voting rights being under attack has been, it's very real. But I feel like the reason specifically on the on the federal level, the reason members of Congress don't show up for us as constituents in the ways that they should and in in, in for the, the the issues and the ideals that we generally like there's a massive population that supports is because they're not afraid of losing their jobs. They're they're not afraid of being ousted because they're not beholden to us, the voters, they are beholden to the special interest money that's going to help them get elected and dump all that, all those millions of dollars into their districts or into their states. Um, and, and it sounds very dire and maybe a little jaded, and I apologize, because I do think there is hope, but, but I think we have to also be very realistic about what we're, what we're up against and how we're going to deal with it. Thank you, Rania. So that's actually a great note to pivot to our final sort of last few minutes that we have here, which is to look to the future. Um, I've heard from all three of you notes of cynicism and jadedness, but also opportunities for hope. So I wanted to ask each of you one final question. Uh, so Rania, picking up on what you just said right now, how are grassroots organizations and progressive strategists planning for the next round? Is it about mobilizing more volunteers? Is it about highlighting special interest funding? Is it about raising more money? And then do these attacks and all this massive spending, do they have a chilling effect on would-be progressive contenders or is it energizing folks to defeat these conservative and corporate interests? Yes, I, I really, I feel strongly that I started as a field organizer a million years ago, and I, I'm a deep believer in organizing. I think it's very important, especially just like I was saying, within communities, reaching out and having those one-on-one -on -one conversations is oftentimes far more influential than, than a lot of other things. But I do also think we can't pretend like money is not a part of this equation. And, and back to, I mentioned it earlier, and Sarah, thank, thank you for dropping that link into the chat, but um, the, the column that Maya Honda wrote, Nida Alam's campaign manager, just about, about kind of what happened in that race and some of the other races across the country. And, and her point was, we can't just organize, we, have, we need more money. And that's true. And I hate that that's true. 
And I want to, in my dream world, what we do is organize on parallel tracks. So we're organizing, pushing Congress to truly do campaign finance reform in a very real way so that we can, so it doesn't cost so much money to, to run, um, to run these races and run for office. And most of us aren't independently wealthy, you know, who running for office and just opening the door for folks like that who are deeply passionate and committed to this country and their communities, but can't not work, for example, you know, they can't run for Congress because they, they have to take care of their families, et cetera. So, um, so yes, if, if we can kind of run this on parallel tracks where we are organizing and we absolutely are um, upholding sort of those, those great ideals around organizing and principles of, of holding our elected officials accountable and making them represent us in the ways that we want them to. And then also having to, to really kind of lean in and in the meantime, raise more money on the progressive end, which again, I, I don't ever like to conflate like presidential races and a house race because that's just not fair, right? But I will say one of the, the doors that Bernie also opened for us was the idea of these smaller dollar donors, grassroots engagement from across the country that again, I'm not, I'm not saying every race is the same, that's not fair, um, but there is opportunity today that wasn't, we didn't have, you know, pre 2015, I guess, to, to really raise, I mean, I guess there's, sorry, there's an argument to be made that Obama kind of started the, the smaller dollar donor and, and I feel like Bernie sort of grew it um, in, in a way where, you know, he wouldn't do fundraisers and he didn't do call time and da, 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 all these sorts of things that candidates hate doing. Um, but it, it is a, there is an opportunity here to sort of, you know, reach out more broadly and, and, um, and bring in additional uh, small dollar donor and grassroots donors who are passionate about what we're doing here as progressives and maybe help sort of create some parity between what's coming in from, from outside organizations and what's coming in from some of these progressive folks. Great, thank you. Yusuf, so this November, of course, is the US midterms, uh, midterm elections, but there's another election happening on November 1st, which is Israel's Knesset elections. Current polls show that far-right candidates are on the rise in Israel, including Kahanists like Itamar Ben-Gavir, who talks openly about expelling Palestinians and frankly, Israelis as well. So given the convergence of Israel-aligned political groups in this country with the potential return of Netanyahu and the far-right coalition in Israel, what might that mean for how Palestinian rights are discussed in the Democratic Party moving forward? Yeah, you know, I, uh, several years ago, and back in 2015, uh, when Netanyahu won uh, election, one of the many times that he did, I, I wrote an article at, uh, at the time entitled Netanyahu's win is good for Palestine. Uh, and the rationale behind that argument was that um, it's important for people to see the reality of what's happening on the ground uh, in Palestine, uh, how overtly and openly uh, racist uh, the Israeli system is becoming towards Palestinians and to have to reckon with that and not hide behind the veneer of liberal Zionists. And I argued that the continuation of right-wing dominance in Israeli politics is going to continue to drive this wedge between the United States and Israel, and in particular, Democrats. Um, and some interesting polling that's come out in um, just recent days has shown that that trend is only accelerated. 
uh, in Israel. Um, the uh, people, the uh, Jewish voters in Israel who identify as right wing uh, has grown from 46% in, in 2019 to 62% now. Um, and, and so this is, that, that's a huge shift in a, a short matter of years, never mind going back to, to 2015. Um, and it's, it's scary because of what that means for uh, how much uglier this, the, the next Israeli government and its policies might be. Um, but I think it also forces a, a, a continued reckoning, um, especially by people who claim to uphold values of equality, of democracy, um, and, and fairness and justice. And I think that's going to continue to have an impact on um, Democrats, liberals more broadly here in the United States, and, and also on Jewish Americans uh, who have um, really an outsized impact on the, in, in the discourse on, on you know, Israel policy um, in this country. Um, so uh, you know, I, I think that it's, we'll see what happens um, with the next Israeli election. It's going to be some flavor of a far right-wing government, most likely. Um, and it's certainly not going to be um, good for Palestinians in the short term, but over the longer term, it's going to reinforce the trends uh, that we've been seeing. And, and, and lastly, when it comes to you know, where you, you see hope, uh, it, may, it may sound strange to say this, but I see hope in the fact that APAC felt necessary to intervene in this way. Um, and that's something that was simply um, not, not imaginable in past years because they never they never had to get involved in such an overt and direct way. It's precisely because they 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 feel the grip on the consensus slipping that they felt necessary to intervene and intervene in the way that they did. And and, and credit is due there to all the people who've been organizing to create the kind of change on the ground that has led to these these possibilities. And and I want to reinforce what Rania said. It it means that we need to double down on those efforts and to continue to build and continue to think about how to grow um, these uh, these movements and in these local elections. Great, thank you for that, Yusuf. So Lara, there seem to be two contradictory trends. So on the one hand, as you and Rania and Yusuf have all kind of alluded to, most of the progressive candidates in this cycle who are attacked by Israel-aligned groups were in fact defeated very closely in many cases. And clearly there were also additional reasons for that, but that is the final tally. And yet on the other hand, these races were close and polls show Democrat vote, Democratic voters continuing to shift to the left. Yusuf also just mentioned his hope um, derived from the fact that APEC has had to spend all these millions of dollars as has other Israel aligned groups. So looking ahead, do you feel more hopeful or less hopeful that we might see a positive change in Congress vis-a-vis Israel-Palestine? So I'm probably the worst person to end with because I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic um, by, by nature when it comes to this stuff. Um, I'm, I, I'm sort of a painful realist at all times. I, I do agree very much with Yusuf. When you look at the engagement by APAC, by DMFI in this last election, in, in, these, in these, these primaries. And we're focused on Democratic primaries. I want to be clear here, not because this is a pro-Democrats phone call. It's because that's where the money went, right? They haven't had to focus on Republican primaries because there aren't Republican candidates out there that they hate the same way they hate Democratic candidates. So fine. Um, but yeah, 
I mean, that, that shows a certain desperation and a certain, I mean, they, they, for so long, they clung to this fiction that they don't engage in electoral politics for them to just throw it away. I mean, it, you really feel like somebody should should be apologizing to Ilhan over the all of the Benjamin stuff, because come on. Um, I, if I'm looking for reason to be hopeful, I'm hopeful that like this, this has been such a brazen, blatant intervention in the, in the small D democratic process that it clearly has been a wake up call. The level of attention this has gotten is mind boggling to me. I, I, again, when I started my thread, I started it mainly as protection because I figured I was covering it and nobody else was. And I wanted to be clear that, you know, I was covering it comprehensively. I mean, this was covered in a way that is just mind boggling to me. And I'll be honest, looking at how close these races were in a lot of cases, I don't know if APAC can replicate this in two years or in four years because this particular playbook is now known. And it's not in that sense a playbook. It's just about money. It's knowing that they're going to do it. It's being, you know, being forewarned is forearmed. I mean, this really did come as a surprise to candidates when someone comes in in the last 10 days of an election with massive funding. It's like they're unprepared for it. And I think largely unprepared with even how to spin it, how to talk about it publicly. But, you know, in terms of being realistic in the time on their side and, you know, this is, you know, is time whose whose side is time on? I, I think it's important to remind ourselves that that groups like APAC and DMFI, they're not really playing for popular popular. They're not playing for popularity, right? It's not like who wins the grassroots win. They're playing for power and impact, and and that's a battle to battle, race to race, race to race, cycle to cycle thing. And it's, it's about restoring and strengthening their ability to define the limits of what are sort of quote unquote acceptable positions on Israel. And elections are just a piece of that, right? This election, this, this primary season is over. I suspect that what you're going to see in the next Congress is a debate over how much chilling effect it actually will or won't have. Because is, as members go into the next two years, it's going to be hanging over people. It always hung over people over their heads that if they pissed off APAC or pissed off people associated with APAC, that there could be problems in their next cycle. That, that, that was known, even if APAC wasn't running a PAC in the traditional sense at the time. That's clearly going to be amplified as a concern. When you sign this letter, does this mean that they're going to support someone against me in the primary with $2 million, $4 million? That's got to be a concern. And in the House, and people watching this probably know politics pretty well. They won't be watching this or listening. In the House, members are always running. Every incumbent is always a candidate. That is the the, the problem of a two-year term, or it's good about a two-year term, whichever you, however you see it. But on top of that, it isn't just about the elections. We are seeing now, and, and this is something Yusuf and I have been talking about constantly for years, there is an ongoing effort here to shift the limits of what is permitted on Israel-Palestine through legislation, right? Legislation that conflates settlements in Israel, legislation that conflates criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, legislation and policy, legislation against any effort like we're seeing today in states with the, the growing rage against ESG, which is the responsible investing, which is for the right now taken on the, the residents of CRT. You know, we, we've got this really like, like painful marriage now between the people who want to make sure that there is no space within which to hold Israel responsible. So investors cannot talk about human rights in Israel, making common cause with the people who want to say the private sector should not be limited on anything. And if you try to limit them on because you oppose fossil fuel investment or guns and ammunition, that is essentially illegal restraint of trade and to get the SEC involved. All of those things are coming together. And, and, you know, the race 
to, to fundamentally shift what is permitted on Israel-Palestine is continuing com on a completely separate track from elections. And that's what people have to contend with as they look ahead. It's not just about thinking about the next election cycle. It's about what happens between now and then on all the other, all the other tracks on which people are trying to shift what is possible, what is allowable. Um, and the, the energies from the grassroots clearly scare people. They scare the forces that want to make sure there is no pressure on Israel. There is no accountability on Israel. There's always impunity. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing what happens when you scare them. But, you know, it's it's great to take comfort in the fact that they are running scared and now reacting. But that that isn't enough um, because they have a strong a strong capacity um, to act in that um, reaction to, popu to the popular views changing. So this is why you should never end with me. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I appreciate all of those uh, notes of both reality and realism, but also the opportunities that Rania and Yusuf and Lara, all of you have presented. So it's a, it's a long road, it's a tough road, but it's definitely one for which I think all of us have capacity and ability to shape uh, moving forward. And so on that note, thank you so much to Rania, Yusuf and Lara for today's conversation. And thank you to everyone who joined us or listened to the event. We're so glad to share this conversation with you. I tried to weave in your questions and we'll share all your questions with the panelists. Please check back to the FMEP website, www.fmep.org for a list of resources relating to the conversation we just had and for announcements of upcoming events, webinars, and podcasts. Thank you all and until next time. Thank you.